Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Pray with me this morning, if you would. Father, we come here having had such different experiences this past week. Lord, some of us are here today, and God, there were so many blessings. There was just so much joy that we saw since we were last gathered here. And then there are others in the room, God, for whom this week was much different. Maybe through sickness or sorrow our grief, our hearts and minds have been overwhelmed. And we don't know what direction to turn next. And so we come, God. We come crying out to you in the midst of our storm. But God, we come knowing that because of Jesus, Though we may not feel it in this moment, we can know it because you've told us the truth. Because of Jesus, it is well with our souls. Because of Jesus, as we put our hope and our trust in him, our souls have a place of refuge. Our souls have a hiding place. Our souls have, God, a place that we can come for shelter. And so some of us celebrate with joy and sing that song that it is well with our soul from the tips of our toes, God, to the tops of our head, and others can barely eke it out. But God, we all come. We come to the one and only place that we know that we know that we know we can find help in time of need. We can find grace and mercy. We can find hope in Christ. And so we come to thank you, God. Even though we face sorrow, even though we may be falling apart in our grief, we come. And we come thanking you, Jesus, that it is well with our souls, not because of our circumstances, but because of you. Because you came and you paid the ultimate price, your life, so that our souls might find rest in God, that we could be one again. And so we come celebrating our trust in you even when our minds and stay. I pray, Father, that you would be with this River family, each and every member of it gathered here, maybe watching from home, uh, just wherever, wherever they're scattered right now. I pray for your hand of blessing to be upon them. And for them to be able to either celebratorily say, or even in their sorrow say, thank you, God, it is well with my soul. It's in the name of Jesus we pray these things, and all of God's people said, amen. Thank you. Uh, You may be seated. Well, we have been in... The book of Nehemiah, 
I don't know how long we've been in it. We've been in it for a little while. Hi, Richard. Good to see y'all. And we're going to finish it today, maybe. I know I said I was going to, and maybe I will. Um, we're going to get through the, the whole chapter, uh, not, not every word, not every verse. Um, but there's some lessons that I, I may just have to come back to I don't know. Uh, I'll let you know when I know, okay? I don't mean for that to sound hyper-mystical. I just don't know. Um, but I, I do want us to look today um, in chapter 13. So you can go ahead and turn there if you want to. You know, I, if you haven't figured it out by now, if you've been here a little while, I hope you know I love this book. I, I love, this, is, this is a book like no other book. It contains the infallible and errant word of God. I believe that to the core of my being. And, and I trust it. I trust it when I can't see beyond my own circumstance. I, I still trust it. And one of the things that I love about this book is it always just lays out truth even when it's hard truth. Even when it's painful and difficult. And even when it's about the heroes of the stories that we read. Um, because we can, if we will, learn from their blunders. We can learn from their, their tragic and sinful mistakes. We can, we can learn something for ourselves. You know, I think of great heroes like, like the Old Testament Moses, the lawgiver, you know. I think about the time when when God's people were desperate in the desert for water, and Moses met with God, and God said, Moses, go over there to that rock and talk to that rock, and fresh water will gush out. And Moses, because he was tired of hearing the people complain in a moment of frustration and anger, instead of speaking to the rock, he goes over with his staff and strikes the rock. But it doesn't change the faithful heart of God for his people. He still sends the water. But in that moment, something changed between God and Moses. And God did not permit Moses to go into the promised land because of that moment. Because of the heart change in Moses. He didn't get to go into the, the promised land. Now, he, he, he's with God. I believe that with my whole heart. But he didn't get to take that step in this life. I think of King David who the New Testament calls a man after God's own heart, great hero of the Bible. You know, as a, as a young man, a boy, took on a giant who had blasphemed God and laid him low and cut off his head. And I mean, it was just incredible, unbelievable kind of story. And, and yet, there comes a day as king when he takes advantages of his power and his position and he takes another man's wife to be his own and he has that man murdered. I think about Peter, the apostle, you know, the one that said, Jesus, I, I will follow you to the death, who denied Jesus, not once, not, not twice, but, but, but three times. I love that God did not hide those things from us, but told the truth so that people who were broken like me, people who blow it, people who try to set our hearts, because I'm including you in this too, because I know so many of you. We set our hearts towards God, but we stumble and we fall and we fail. 
But God tells us that my grace is sufficient for you. And then he displays it in the lives of so many, so many others. And one of the things it points out to me is how truthful this book is. That it doesn't hide, you know, the bad and the ugly. It shows the good, but it points it all out. And there are stories in there that we love to love. And then there are stories in there that we struggle to love. We just struggle sometimes. Wishing that they had somehow turned out differently. But friends, the Bible is not Hollywood. You know, in Hollywood, if they don't like the way a story is ending, they rewrite it. Did you know that? They'll pull in screening groups. And they'll kind of read dramatically through the ending of a story. And if people don't like the ending, they'll send it back to rewrite and you know what endings people most likely, mostly don't like? Are endings that are sad or endings where the hero doesn't win. We, we don't like those kinds of stories. And so they'll send them back to rewrite. You know, I think of one that I, I, am, I am a Star Wars nerd. Laugh, mock, throw things, I don't care. It's just the truth about me, Okay. My children, I raised them to be Star Wars nerds. I love that franchise. One of my favorite movies in that franchise is Return of the Jedi. But do you know the ending, you know, where they're all dancing and there's this big party and that kind of, that was not the original ending. In the original ending of the Return of the Jedi, Luke finds out who his real dad is. He kills him and he takes on the mask and personifies him. Luke, look it up. That was one of the original endings. And they, you know, George gathered a group of people. Me and George are on first name. George Lucas gathered a, a, a group of people for a screening. They read it and they, how with that, they wrote, a, they wrote a different ending. Because we like our endings the way that we like them. Because we like that. But the Bible isn't Hollywood. See, the Bible isn't really our story. The Bible is the story of God. It's the story of God ushering in his kingdom. It's the story of God setting out to display how he's going to redeem all of broken creation. It's the story of God inviting broken people like you and me into his story. And we've been looking at part of that story in the story of, of Nehemiah. Now, I don't know if I've said this before, but Nehemiah is one of the historic books of the Old Testament. You know, there's different kinds of literature in the Old Testament. There's like poetry, and, you know, the Psalms and Proverbs, those are kind of, kind of poetry literature. There's the law. There's the first five books of the Bible. It's about the law, God giving the law. There's some history in it, of course, but um, it's really about that. Um, there are prophetic books that are mostly about the prophetic word of God coming through prophets to God's people. It, there's some history that tracks with that. But then there are other books like 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles that are histories. Nehemiah is the book in the Old Testament that brings us to the last historical moment recorded in the Old Testament. So when we get to the chapter 13, we have reached the end of Old Testament history. Now, there's a, a prophet named Malachi who's kind of credited with the last prophetic word uh, of God before God is silent for 400 years between the Old Testament and New Testament. That's the prophetic book. He's a contemporary of Nehemiah. 
But Nehemiah is the last historical book. So when we get to the end of chapter 13, the Old Testament history closes. And that's where God's people are left. And that's what I want us to look at today. Nehemiah, if you would, chapter 1, and we are going to start in in verse 1, as soon as I get there. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Now, I want to pause there and I want to run back to chapter 12. Do you remember how chapter 12 ended? Chapter 12 ended a little bit like the rewrite of the Return of the Jedi. They had this great big celebration. They marched around the wall, two great big choirs, uh, you know, band playing both ways. They meet the middle. It's a celebration. They sacrifice. It is such a loud party of celebrating God. The Bible says it could be heard far away. It was beautiful, and you're probably going to come today, like I did in a moment, uh, when I was reading it, thinking, God, why in the world does chapter 13 exist? How come we couldn't just end right there? Because that's a happy ending. How come we couldn't end there? Why do we, gotta, why do we, why do we have to press into this? But we do. And so we read that here in the book of Moses, they read it and they found in the writings of the Old Testament, the law, that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter into the assembly of God. And God gives reference to that here in Nehemiah and he's pointing back to an event that took place in Numbers chapter 22 and 23 that you can go look up if you want to later. Great story, you ought to read about it to understand why God says, they shall, when we gather for worship, they can't be included. There was a reason for that. God had a reason. He has a reason for everything. And God's word declared that no Ammonite or no Moabite could be a part of the worshiping community of God. But now I want you to notice what God's people do with that word, okay? God says no Ammonite, no Moabite. Here's what God's people do. Verse 3, as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now, had God's word said everybody who's foreign-born and their descendants need to get out of here? Is that what he said? He just picked out two groups, the Ammonites, Moabites. But God's people think, we got a better plan. We know a better way to do it. Just to make sure we cover all of our bases and check all of the legalistic boxes, we'll just put everybody out who's not like us. And so they did. They just separated everybody out. God, God's word had not said that. But they chose to add to the word of God. Friends, when you and I start adding to the words of God, we are setting ourselves up as God. We are putting ourselves above the word of God in a different kind of way than not abiding by it. We set ourselves up as an authority over it. And it destroys faith communities. And this is the first takeaway for me as I read this 13th chapter is this. Faith communities crumble when legalism grows. When legalism begins to take root in the hearts of the people of God, trouble happens. We've seen this since the beginning of time. If you go back to the garden in 
God, Genesis chapter 2 tells us that God formed Adam and Eve and he planted them in this beautiful paradise garden of Eden. And he put them in this garden to, to tend the garden. God said, every single plant in this, in this garden, you can go look it up, Genesis 2.17. Every single plant, you can eat of it, except the one that's in the center, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can't, can't eat of that plant. That's God's word. Don't eat the fruit of that particular tree. Everything else is, is yours. And so Genesis 3 starts with the serpent coming. Look at this, Genesis 3, 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now is that what God had said? Nope. He said, There's one tree. Just don't eat the fruit of that tree. Everything else you can have. So he was adding to the word of God. He's a liar. He was adding to the word of God. Now look what, look what happens to Eve. Verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, No, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Then she adds this, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. If you go look in Genesis 2, 17, God never said anything about touching it. He just said, don't eat. Don't, don't eat from it. So Satan distorts the word of God. Eve distorts the word of God. And both of them do it by adding to it. Not taking away, but, but adding to it. And the next thing we see, paradise is lost. The whole of creation falls under corruption of sin and death. Friends, here's the deal about a legalistic spirit that tries to add rules and regulations to the word of God. It will begin to destroy community. It will just begin to do that. That's why I think in the very last book, of the Bible, the very last chapter of that book contains a warning about adding to the Word of God. Listen to this in Revelations 22. John is writing this because of this vision he says. He says, I warn everyone who hears the word of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. He goes on to say, don't take away from my word either, but don't add to it. Friends, we need to be very, very careful about what we try to add on top of God's word. Jesus, the, the thing that Jesus went after, you read the gospels, the thing that Jesus went after more than anything else was this legalistic idea that I, can, I need to be adding to the word of God, checking all the boxes, making sure everybody else is doing the same thing. It, it was the Pharisees. Look at, look at Matthew chapter 23. Jesus talking about the Pharisees, he says they crush people with impossible religious demands and they never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. So what they do is they, they look at the word of God and they say, hey, we're going to draw up this kind of thing right here that we can do a checklist and check it off and we'll look good. And it destroyed the people of God. It destroyed community. Community crumbles around that. I want you to walk with me again back into the book of Nehemiah. It will lead us to the next thing that I see here. Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 4 through 9. Now before this, Eliashib the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God. Now, what, what does it say Eliashib was? He's a priest, okay? So he's pretty important in the, community, the faith community here. He's a priest. But not only is he a priest, he was one that was appointed over the chambers of the house, house of God. What's the house of God? The temple. The most important building in all of Israel. The most important uh, place, 
They understood that God lived there, dwelt there. That was the center of their faith, of their life. And he was put, he was the priest that was put in charge of the administration of the temple. Now, now look at this. And it says, and he was related to Tobiah. Anybody remember who Tobiah is? If you go back to the opening chapters, Tobiah uh, was this kind of enemy, if you would, uh, of the people of God. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 1, one of the things you'll discover uh, about Tobiah is that Tobiah is an Ammonite. Okay? So we have this priest in charge of the whole temple, basically. He's related to Tobiah, who's an Ammonite, and we already know what was supposed to happen to the Ammonites. They're not having any part in, in the worship of God or uh, being with God's people. So the, the, these, these two groups that were supposed to be put out. But now look at this, back to verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment. This was, this was the commandment of God that God's people should bring in the first fruits of everything they made, the tithe, all of that were to be brought in. And it, it, it goes on to say, by the commandment, and it's given to the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and, and the contributions for the priest. Tobiah, the Ammonite, now has an Airbnb in the temple. I mean, that's basically what it's broken out to. He's got his own downtown apartment for when he comes to town. And did you notice what room, what it was in? It was in the temple. And not only was it just in the temple, it was the room where all of the tithes and offerings that had been brought in were supposed to be stored. They were gone. Now, what could you imagine happened to all of that? Now, I watch a little bit of, you know, CSI and those kind of shows. And, you know, I believe he probably pocketed all of that. Joe's opinion, can't prove it. But I believe that's what was going on there. That he stole all of this. Now, understand, his decision, Eliashib's decision, did not only you know, provide this thing for Tobiah the Ammonite who was not supposed to be anywhere near the temple. But it also wrecked what was going on in the people of God. If you read through the rest of the chapter, you'll discover that because they were no longer being sustained in the temple, because the tithes and offerings were no longer coming in for the priests and the Levites and the singers, those people responsible for the worship of, and, and the house of God's maintenance, that they had to leave Jerusalem and go back and tend their plots of land. They had to go, they had to go do uh, uh, other things because of that. And then we pick up in verse 6. And verse 6 says, while this was taking place, this is Nehemiah speaking now, while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. So here's what we discover. If you go back to chapters 1 and 2 in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah eventually, uh, by the, just the, the mercy of God and the providence of God, uh, leads the king to say to Nehemiah, What's, why is your soul so downcast? What's up? Nehemiah tells him about how bad things are in Jerusalem. And the king says, well, you go fix it. How long do you need to be gone? And 
Nehemiah tells him some time, and he says, okay, I want you back. And so Nehemiah honors the commitment he made to the king here, and he goes back. He goes back to the king. Now, you can, based upon the timing here, come to understand that Nehemiah had been in Jerusalem before he goes back to Babylon. He's been in Jerusalem now for about 12 years. And, and the Bible says that he goes back to the king to fulfill his obligation. And then it says this, and after some time, I asked leave of the king. Now, we don't know how long that time was. Um, it, you know, usually when the Bible uses a, something like that, a phrase like that, after some time has passed or when time, it, that kind of thing, there, it's a little bit of a length of time. Uh, different historians and theologians I read talk somewhere in that neighborhood of, of 10 years or so possibly that Nehemiah has been gone. Uh, he's not been in, in Jerusalem. And things have started to just really fall uh, uh, apart. Verse 7. And so Nehemiah says, And I came to the Jerusalem and I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. I was very angry, verse 8 it says. And I threw all the household furniture to buy out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering, with the frankincense. And I just want to highlight something. We're going to come back to it in a bigger way in a minute. But I want to highlight while we're here at verse 8. Verse 8, Nehemiah describes himself as being not just angry, but very angry. Rightfully so. Rightfully so. He should have been angry. Elishab, had, he, he, had, he had just forsaken the word of God. He had gone against everything. He had probably stolen, as best as we can tell. And then he's given this room in the temple, in the house of God, to an Ammonite for his own pleasure. It was like one of the worst of the worst things. And, and Nehemiah was very angry. And anger was appropriate at this point. But here's something that I just want to say here. I believe that a seed got planted here that begins to grow a poisonous plant in Nehemiah's own life. So just, just hold that thought for a minute. We're going to come, come back to that. But, and remember this. Um, it's not going to come up on the screen. You can write it down if you want to in James chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. Holy Spirit inspired Jesus' half-brother James to, to write these words. Everyone, everyone, no exception. Must be, must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. My anger won't do it. Your anger won't do it. Especially if we persist in it. It, it will not ultimately accomplish the righteousness of God. Is there a place for righteous anger in this world? Yes. Is there a place for it? Yes. The Bible also tells us don't let your anger and the sun set on it. Don't, 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 you got to deal with your anger in, in, in a given day. So to toss Tobias' furniture out should have happened. It, it needed to happen. To reconsecrate those rooms that had been defiled needed to happen. To restore the tithes and offerings coming in and, and the Levites and the singers all being re restored to their, their work and their purpose should have happened. Now, here's what took place in the heart of Eliashib. It, he, he decided that he was going to do what he wanted. Friends, this is a third or second thing that I see that destroys a community of faith. Faith communities crumble when anarchism grows. 
It, it, it crumbles when legalism grows. It also crumbles when anarchism grows. Eliashib kind of looked around and said, Nehemiah ain't here no more. We're going to do things my way. I got a better plan. This is, I, th- I think things ought to be done this way. This is, I, I look at this world and I see what's going on and this is what I think should happen. Eliashib did what was right in his own sight. That's what, that's what Eliashib did. Now, if you go to the book of Judges, uh, if you're familiar with the book of Judges, the book of Judges has a cycle that just kind of repeats, you know. It just kind of repeats itself. It's kind of like, you know, rinse and wash, rinse and wash, you know, those kind of things. Um, there's this cycle, and the cycle basically is God prospers his people, God's people stray, they start to worship other gods, they fall into misery and oppression, they finally cry out to God coming to their senses, and God delivers them, and it just goes back. And multiple times in the book of Judges, when they get to that point where everything, God has blessed them and all that, uh, eventually it says this, and they did what was right in their own sight. Friends, when we start doing what's right in our sight instead of in the sight of God, faith communities crumble. Destruction comes in. You know, it, 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 just, it just comes in. And when people no longer follow the leaders that God, God appoints and do what's right in their own sight, it leads to the destruction of biblical community. It, it just, it, it does. Listen to how God's word speaks to this in lots of places. The prophet Isaiah, God said, woe to those. And I don't, woe, woe there doesn't mean stop. It basically means cursing is going to come upon you. Okay? Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. If your wisdom only is based on what you see and what you want to do from that, it could cause trouble. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15. The way of a fool is right. In his own eyes. Romans chapter 12 verse 16. New Testament. Live in harmony the Bible says with one another. And then it gives instruction on what that looks like. Never be wise in your own sight. Never just, just always trust that you see things rightly. Friends we are living in the age of anarchy. We're just living in an age of anarchy. Where everybody's doing right. What is right in their own sight in so many ways. Just just running headlong into that. And God's word warns us about that. Paul continuing on this theme in Romans chapter 13. We've read this before. It says, everyone must submit to governing authorities for all authority comes from God and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God, even if we don't like them, even if we don't agree with them. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and they will be punished. Brothers and sisters, we, we, we have got, as the people of God, we have you know, got to understand we're called by Jesus to live differently from the world so that they can see him. And too often these days, the church is just running headlong with the world. And I believe in so many ways we're being controlled at times by the spirit of the age, which is anarchy. Everybody just doing what's right in his own sight. You see, Jesus calls all of us who would follow him to humility, 
to serving one another, to, to the life of washing others' feet, being patient and gentle, standing against the destructive power of anarchy, yes, in prayer, in the power of God's word, not by doing everything that's right in our own sight. There's a third thing that I see in Nehemiah chapter 13 that I think shows what undermines the work of God among his people, and it's this. Faith communities crumble when egocentrism grows. When legalism grows, when anarchism grows, when egocentrism grows. And unfortunately, in chapter 13, we begin to spot this in the life of the leader, in the life of Nehemiah. And we've already pointed out how the Bible tells us, by his own declaration, he got very angry. But it becomes obvious as you read through all of chapter 13 that Nehemiah does not let that anger go. He lets the sun set on it, and he holds it in, and he, he just keeps it in, and it begins to erode his soul and undermine his leadership to the place that he becomes more self-focused, more thinking about himself than he does the people that he had lamented for back in chapter 1. He goes from this guy with this great shepherd's heart, well, we'll see what he goes to. He develops this blind spot, this pattern that you're going to see. Uh, chapter 13, verse 14 says this. This is Nehemiah now praying. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. So this is his prayer. That doesn't seem like a horrible prayer, but he's, he's asking God, don't forget about the good things I'm doing. Okay? What? But God, look at me. See me. You know, that's, that's kind of, you ever seen two-year-olds do that? Watch me! Watch me! This is kind of a two-year-old prayer. Watch me! It goes on. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 22. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. He should have done that. They started opening the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, and foreign traders were coming in, trading their wares on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was being desecrated. He should have done this. But watch what he does now. He prays again to God, remember this also in my favor, oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. He's not praying for those people. He just sent them out to take care of business. Don't let them in the city. God, remember me. Look at me. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 23. Nehemiah says this, in, in those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people group, basically the people that they had intermarried with. Now, friends, that was a problem that needed to be addressed. Because when they gathered for worship, they worshiped in Hebrew. And the kids were gathered for worship, they couldn't understand the worship of God. So it was a problem that needed to be addressed, but I'm not so sure it needed to be addressed this way. Look how he handles it. He says, and I confronted them, this is Nehemiah, and I cursed them, and I beat some of them, and I pulled out their hair, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. The problem needed to be addressed, but I don't think Nehemiah coming apart like that as a leader was the pathway for that. 
He, he had come to believe that the best path for effective leadership was through violent coercion. Here's how we'll get God's people to do what God's people need to do. Now, remember, the old Nehemiah, he was the one who prayed and waited for the providential hand of God to move on the king. He prayed and he waited, he prayed and he waited, he prayed and he waited. And now, the only prayer he's praying is, God, look at me. And he's living out of anger. And instead of shepherding God's people, well, he's coming at them destructively with a heart of violence. Now, not only had the people of God changed, but something had changed in Nehemiah. Something had changed in this great leader of God that God had used in incredible ways. Friends, there's a lesson here. I didn't write it down, but, you know, you may start well, but it matters how well you finish. And Nehemiah here is not finishing well. And I want you to look at how this book concludes. This 13th chapter of Nehemiah concludes. Verse 29, he's now going to pray for the people, okay? He's going to pray for them. This is what he prays. Verse 29, remember them, O God. Because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. He's basically saying, God, when you look at them, when you look at how wretched and horrible they have been. And then we get to verse 31 and his last prayer is, remember me, oh my God, for good. There is this place in Nehemiah's heart where things turned inwardly and it became in some ways about him that he's no longer praying for the good of God's people he's only praying for the good of himself his heart had grown cold the people's heart had grown cold see when we get over to the new testament jesus warns about that kind of heart issue because it is so easy so easy for every one of us to move over there if I was speaking Star Wars language, I'd say to the dark side. It's just so easy for us to, to transfer over there. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus said to the crowd, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn away from your selfish ways, from your egocentrism, from serving what you want the way you want. And you must take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, the way you want it, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. The Apostle Paul, teaching the teaching of Jesus to the church at Philippi, Philippi says it this way in Philippians 2. Do nothing, nothing, from self-ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other, when you pray, don't spend your prayer life praying, God, get them, and God, look at me. Pray differently than that. Again, Paul warns the church at Rome about the consequences of drifting towards this self-centered, egocentristic living. Romans chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says that God will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness, who refuse to... See others as significant. Seek the welfare of others. Now, if I could have 
chosen the ending for Nehemiah 12, or Nehemiah, I probably would have stopped at chapter 12. I think most of us would have. Most of us would have said, let's stop right there. It's a great party. It's a beautiful thing. Yay, yay, yay. But there's a reason. God did not let it in there, I, I think. And I, I think it's because it would not have been good for us, for us to only see that. Because then it would not only become our desire, but our expectation. That everything we face always end perfectly the way we want it. We would begin to expect it, and then when we didn't get it, our hearts would turn cold toward God. We would end up in this difficult space. We would start blaming God. See, God tells us in his word that we are going to face trials and tribulations while we're here. But then he goes on and tells us, but don't be afraid because I've overcome the world. Don't lose heart when you face those things because I've overcome the brokenness. See, you know, I think it might be the effect on our hearts had we stopped it at chapter 12. We might be prone to think, now let me see. If I always do what is right, things will always turn out right. Some people live that way. We think if, if, I, just, if, I, if I can check the boxes off, oh, yeah, I need to do Yeah, I did that one. Oh, yeah, I, I'm doing that one. I can check the boxes off. If I made a deal with God that if I would keep these things, always do what's right, then things will always turn out right. Friends, that's a lie from hell. It's not what God's word communicates. Now, ultimately, yes. In the end, yes. But not in the broken world in which we live. Sometimes things fall apart. Another reason that I, I don't think God ended Nehemiah 12, I mean, the story of Nehemiah Nehemiah 12, is because we have a tendency to think we did it. Our souls have this tendency, if everything works out good because we did this, this, and because we, we played the formula through, then we, we get to the end of that and we look back and we say, we did it. We win. Remember, the story's not about us, but we get there so quickly. The story's, the story's about God and bringing glory to God. You know, it, it probably would have for a short period of time in our lives, been more satisfying if Nehemiah 12 had been the end of the story. But God knew better. God knew what our souls needed. God needed us to see that it does not take a lot for things that are done on this earth to get reset. You know, we want, we want chapters 1 through 12, but that got wiped out in 10 years or so. When Nehemiah came back and found things awry. And Nehemiah himself had become undone on that journey. See, with, with the kind of ending that God gave us, we come to realize it's not just about me finding the perfect five-year plan and implementing it. That it's really about me walking with God. It's really coming to the understanding that unless the Spirit of God does it, it will not last. Unless the Spirit of God brings true heart change, 
It's going to fall off the rails eventually because only God can change a heart. Only God can do that. And we've got to be consciously aware of that so that our efforts to partner with God don't become about us thinking that somehow through our strength, our power, that we're going to make it happen, whether it's as an individual or as a church. So ultimately, what we have to do is put our trust in the Lord. Now, do we need to maintain some kind of structure like they had in you know, chapters 1 through 12? Do we need to have biblical community? Yes. Do we need that, that, does that biblical community need to center around the infallible and errant word of God? Yes. It absolutely does. Do we need to gather for corporate worship and discipleship? Do we need to go out and spread the good news? Yes. If we were to forsake those things, then when the day came when God was going to pour forth his spirit of revival, we wouldn't be ready. We wouldn't know what it, it looked like. So yes, we have to be about the work. But we have to realize we got to let go of the outcomes. We're, we're not in control. Our job is to stay focused on him. To, to walk with him. To look at his faithfulness and his promises. So there's two things that I want to give you kind of as takeaways for me. Because chapter 13 is real. The first one is this. Only renovation of the heart can bring lasting change. Only a God-ordained renovation of a human heart can bring lasting change. It's all throughout Scripture. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us to trust in the Lord with all your heart. All your heart. All your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. and He'll show you what path to take. He'll direct your path. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31 says, But those who trust in the Lord... Those who trust in the Lord, no matter what you're facing, you'll find strength. No matter what you're facing, you will find strength. Jeremiah 24, verse 7 says, I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole hearts. God is looking for us to return to him with our whole hearts, because only God can do a work of the heart. And only that kind of work will last. See, I can't control it. You can't control it. We try to control our circumstances and people around us. And that's one of the reasons why you and I need to kind of take a step in, with our brothers and sisters in the recovery movement. And we need to regularly pray, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change. The ability to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. I have a problem knowing the difference. I have a problem wanting to be in charge, and it takes courage not to, to be in charge, to not try to take control. See, all we can do is trust the Lord with our hearts. Here's my last takeaway. When it looks like the story isn't ending well, we got to remember it's not the end of the story. When it looks like the Old Testament just did not end well, We've got to remember, that's not the end of the story. Now, it was the end of the Old Testament historically, but that was not the end of, of God's story. It's not the end of the story of God's people because the Old Testament, after 400 years of silence of God, moves into the New Testament. And we get over there, and John records some of the activity of God. In John chapter 1, verse 6, we read, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. It's John the Baptist that he's speaking of. And it says he came as a witness to bear a witness about the light that all might believe through him. All might believe through this light. 
Verse 34, we jump there. It says, John says, and I have seen and I have bore witness that this is the Son of God. He's pointing to Jesus. In verse 35, it says, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus. And as Jesus walked by, he said, behold, the Lamb of God, the promised one. The one who will change human hearts. The one who has the capacity to manage and control it all. He would come. Later in Jesus' life and teaching in Matthew chapter 16, he would declare this. He said, I'm going to build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. I'm going to give you the ability to work with me to bring about everlasting change in the world. And just before Jesus would be crucified the night before, when he would be with his disciples, before he would make that great sacrifice, paying the penalty for our sins that we couldn't pay. On that night, Jesus was with his disciples, and he told them this in John 14. He said, in my Father's house are many rooms. Just, just interesting to note, in the temple there were many rooms. In the Old Testament temple, we looked, talked about some of those rooms. This is a reference that some believe, back to the temple, in the, the dwelling place of God. It said, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Again, some commentators point out that this is a reference to the dwelling place of God. Jesus says, I'm going to go and prepare a better place for you. A better place where my Father in heaven is. A better place with a better story than the one you're sitting in today. In the circumstance you may find yourself in. Because this is the ending of that better story, the story of God. Revelation chapter 21 says, John writes, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things will have passed away. Jesus tells us there's a coming day when all of this struggle will cease. And we need to stay in the struggle. But we need to hold on to the hope that we have in Christ. That he is with us through the most difficult times. Even if you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with you. Times like we're living in today. And Jesus calls us to put our trust and our hope in him when things seem hopeless. Because he says he's coming back. He says he's going to do that. But in the in-between time, we're going to face difficulty. As a church, we've been facing some difficulty. We've been facing financial difficulty. And we have sent letters out about it. We've uh, talked about it in our family meetings, the two or three most recent ones we've had. We've invited people to pray about it. Our elders have wrestled and struggled through what to do and how to do it. We've, we've cut staff salaries a couple of times. And things had not changed. And so we went back to, to the Lord and asked, God what, God, what would you call us to do? And one of the things that we have to do as leaders, one of the things I have to do as your pastor is just 
talk about the reality of where we find ourselves in this moment. And even when it's painful, even when it's, when it's hard to face, and we're at one of those moments in, in the life of our, our church. And at this point, our, our elders, again, after looking and praying and seeking, have concluded that we needed to make some adjustments in the structure of our staff and that we are going to have to downsize our staff. And after, after much prayer and heartache, uh, we made a decision we have to cut a staff position. And um, the staff position that we believe that the Lord brought us to, to, to end, to eliminate, is the staff position that Pastor Guy Smith currently holds. And so two weeks ago, um, almost three now, I went and, and met with Guy and talked with him about this and told him that we were going to be able to continue uh, his salary through March if God would bless financially we, we could go longer and we would as, as long as we can um, but that this position was being eliminated and our, it broke our hearts we love Guy Smith we love Linda Smith they're part of, part of this family but it was a decision that we, we had to make we had to do something different than what we were, we were doing. Now, um, we're working, have been working with um, some of our denominational leaders, people who have far more influence in our city and our state than I do. Pastor Kurt's one of them, that we're trying to help Guy find this next, this next place of service. Um, I don't know whether this is any consolation to you. It, it, it was to me. Um, in October-ish, Pastor Guy came to me and said, Joe, I don't want you to hear it through the grapevine, but I've been putting out resumes. Now, I had no idea we were going to be here today. Guy had no idea we were going to be here today. But looking back, it looks like God put something in his heart to prepare him for that which none of us saw coming. And so he's, he's been doing that, and now we're helping but I'm, I'm asking you to pray, to pray for Guy and Linda Smith. Now, today they're, uh, they're with their newest grandchild that was born last week. They're celebrating that, but right now they're facing difficulty. We're, as a church, we're facing difficulty. But no matter how hard it gets, no matter how difficult this journey gets, We've got to go back to that basic and put our trust in the Lord. Guy has told me that's what he's doing. I believe it. But we need to pray like we've never prayed before. And part of that praying, we need to be asking God, God, am I doing what you're calling me to do? Am I faithfully supporting the work of your kingdom through the church where you've planted me? And if not, why not? And then make whatever change God would call you to make. I've asked Dean Enfinger to come and lead us in a time of prayer. And then after Dean leads our time of prayer, our worship team is going to lead us in a song about the hope we have in Jesus alone. And I pray that you will find a place, a space, 
in your own life to step into that when things are really hard like they are in this moment. Dean, if you'd lead us. If you'd pray with me. Father, as I, as I just asked you, how, how do I pray into this moment? It, I believe what you put on my heart was to, to be honest and to trust in you. So, Father, in honesty, it breaks my heart, and I'm grieved. Lord, I want River Bluff to be instantly restored, and I want to continue to do ministry with my brother Guy, who I love, who has been faithful and true and served so well here. And Lord, I thank you that at 59, I have lived through dark times and times that I really thought couldn't be redeemed or restored, and yet you did just that. So, Father, I, that's my prayer. I pray that you redeem and restore the finances of River Bluff and that you redeem and restore Guy and Linda into a new position. Father, as we are losing, I know there will be a gain in the kingdom and a fellowship with his unique talents and giftings. So, Lord, in this time, I trust you, knowing that you can do more than I can think or imagine. In Jesus' name, amen.
is going to be to see Guy and Linda and go the other way. Don't do that. You let Jesus be your hope, but you let Jesus be their hope through you. You run to them. You don't run away from them. You embrace them. You let them know they have mattered in your life, and you love them, and that you do believe that whatever God put in Guy's heart months ago, God's going to see it through. Not you, not me. Wasn't up to us in the first place, although I act like it sometimes, I know. But it's not us. It's Him. He's your living hope. Live in Him. God bless you. We'll see you soon.